This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, The Paradox of Self-Will, recorded February 23, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This is a question that is, uh, was put in the box by Fred, and I'll read you the question. If our belief in self-will is the linchpin of delusion and our past conditioning keeps us grasping, and thus the wheel of samsara, samsara turning, how then can we use this grasping mind to see through our delusion of self? So the idea here is that we have self-will, we have a grasping mind, and he didn't mention, but I'm going to talk about discriminating mind, and all these uh, faculties that we have, so to speak, are... Uh, deluded, <coughs> and that's what keeps the whole wheel of suffering of samsara turning, that how can we use those things to get out? If we use these things, aren't we just going to dig ourselves in deeper? In order to understand this in more detail, let's review briefly how this whole wheel of samsara arises. The wheel of samsara is an image that comes from Buddhism, and it's the uh, it's an image that reflects our experience under delusion, our experience of suffering. And it's uh, imaged as a wheel because it's not a static condition. We actually are creating our own suffering. Uh, we don't realize it, but moment to moment. So it's something that, uh, like a wheel, it keeps going round and round and round. Actually, delusion is an activity. Uh, or let's put it this way, the out of a basic ignorance arises this deluded activity that keeps turning this wheel around and around. But our fundamental problem is ignorance. And we have to always bear this in mind. Our fundamental problem is ignorance. We ignore the absolute reality, the true nature of our own experience, which is non-dual, which is, uh, in some traditions put, there is nothing but God, uh, there's nothing but Brahman, there's nothing but Allah, there's nothing but consciousness itself. And our perception of duality is imaginary. And this includes what we take to be ourselves. So the whole dichotomy between self and world is imaginary, it's an appearance. And one of the most common metaphors for this is like an appearance in a dream. In a dream, you experience a self and a world. And you may or may not be the self that you are now. You may have a different body. You may be younger. You may be older. You may be an animal. You might dream you're an elk wandering through some landscape. And in the dream, it feels like you are a separate entity, subject, person, whatever, and that there's this objective landscape out there. And when you wake up, you realize all that was an appearance. It was really, if you like, all made of consciousness. It was appearing in consciousness, and it was all made of consciousness. It wasn't made of anything. Uh, in the dream, you can uh, touch an elk, or a tree, or a rock, or whatever, and you can get the even the tactile sensation.
But truly speaking, there is nothing there to grasp. So this is our ignorance. Our ignorance is of the basic nature of our experience. And we have this experience of being an I separated from our surroundings, our environment, and we take that separation to be real. We mistake it to be real. And that is the beginning of this whole wheel of samsara. We mistake it to be real, and so we feel ourselves to be limited, bounded beings. And that experience of I, as a limited, bounded being, itself is suffering. It's a claustrophobic, constricted experience of isolation, separation, loneliness, and so forth. So we, we don't have to do anything else. Our suffering arises simply in that mistaking this boundary, which is imaginary, to be real. But this sets up a dynamic then, because we feel this as suffering, and so we want to escape suffering. And we know that it's the boundary that's the cause of our suffering, so we want to reach out across that boundary. We want to possess things, people. And this is the beginning of this grasping mind. This is what grasping mind means here. This urge, this desire to uh, expand this boundary, to include more things in this boundary, but also to defend the boundary. So the other flip side of grasping mind is aversion mind, the mind that pushes things away. But really, it's just a double negative. In other words, we want those things that will enhance and protect and expand this boundary, and we don't want those things that we feel are going to threaten the boundary. Because we take this boundary to be us. If this boundary goes, we feel that's it, we're going. So right away, this gives rise to discriminating mind. Discriminating mind is the mind that looks out at all this stuff and decides, this I like, this I don't like, in the simplest terms. This is going to enhance, increase, uh, and protect me, and this is going to threaten me. So we start viewing the world in this dualistic way, through the lens of discriminating mind. So grasping mind is reaching out, discriminating mind is dividing everything up, right? And then within this boundary, decisions are made, judgments are made, actions arise, and we own those. We think that this is somehow us doing this, us being that limited self. And this is self-will, individual will. This is the linchpin of this whole delusion because... In the end, at least for most people, this is the hardest uh, delusion to see through. If you see through that one, usually the whole house of cards collapses. So it's like a linchpin. You pull it out and it all falls apart. So these are the three impulses we're dealing with here. This sense of self-will that we actually can do things this uh, desire to grasp things, and then this discrimination of the world into likes and dislikes. Now, there's one problem with all this, and that is that these things are not real that we try to grasp onto. And so, 
this grasping is ultimately futile. We can't actually hold them. And the sign of their unreality is their impermanence. So whenever we do try to grasp onto uh, some little experience that provides us a little uh, taste of happiness, that provides us a little escape from our suffering, we have it for a moment, but it dissolves away. It's impermanent. And so then we grasp at it again, and it dissolves away, and we grasp at it again, and it dissolves away. And this sets up this conditioned mind, this conditioning, which is based on attachments. We can take a very uh, simple example of this, and uh, that is eating ice cream, say vanilla ice cream. If you don't like vanilla ice cream, think of chocolate ice cream or Rocky <laughs> Road or whatever. You get that ice cream cone, you lick the ice cream, and there's this pleasurable sensation in your mouth, and maybe it has all sorts of psychological, symbolic meanings to you. You're rewarding yourself for something or whatever. It can get very complicated with human beings. And then there's a moment of pleasure, and then it dissolves away. It's impermanent. So you lick it again, and it dissolves away. You lick it again, and it dissolves away. You keep doing that until you finish the ice cream, and if you've got a particularly diluted grasping mind, you'll order another one and another one until you get so stuffed and you're sick of it. But you'll have remembered that wonderful experience of tasting the ice cream. So uh, next week, you'll run back down to the ice cream store to repeat it. And then it becomes a, a conditioning. This is what conditioning is. Right in there, in that little example, you see the, how all of the wheel of samsara arises and is perpetuated through this conditioning. Is everybody following this little example? Mm -hmm. we, we read these terms sometimes from Sanskrit and other cultures, the wheel of samsara, and we think they're great philosophical terms. But really, uh, as practitioners, it's much more important for us to see how they actually operate in our lives. So you look at your life and you say, oh, yes, I can see this conditioning. So all this grasping, discriminating, and so forth, uh, that this attempt to escape suffering through these means is all futile, ultimately. It doesn't mean we don't have moments of pleasure, moments of joy, and so forth, but it's never permanent. It's never a permanent solution to our fundamental existential suffering that's caused by this delusion that we are some self, enclosed in a boundary. The question is... How can we get off this wheel of samsara? Especially if our experiences, what we're working with is self-will, a grasping mind, a discriminating mind, and a conditioned mind. How do you uh, break that chain of causation? Well, fortunately, there's one factor that we haven't taken into consideration. Uh, in this description of our experience. And that is a native intelligence or wisdom that is inherent in consciousness itself. And we don't really have a good, accurate word in the English language to describe this. Uh, I don't mean by intelligence the kind of intelligence that you use in discursive thought to solve problems, the kind of intelligence, for instance, that's measured on an IQ test. This is the, uh, the kind of intelligence that gives you insight, 
direct cognition, that little kind of aha experience when, when you suddenly see uh, something through confusion. And everybody has had insights. It's not all that mysterious. Uh, one of my favorite examples is, uh, if you remember back to school, maybe some teachers are trying to explain geometry to you, and they're trying to explain a theorem, and they go over it, and you don't understand it, and they go over it again, and you don't understand it, and they go over it again. It's not that you're getting new information. You might be getting it from a slightly different angle, but at some point you go, oh, aha, I see. I get it. It's, it's what uh, operates when you get a joke. You ever heard a joke and there's a, if you, there's a moment, maybe you don't get it, and then it sort of dawns and you go, aha. That is the kind of intelligence we're talking about here, the kind of wisdom. It's really a basic awareness, and it is working all the time, even under delusion. If it wasn't operating, nothing would appear. You wouldn't be aware of anything. There'd be no awareness of anything whatsoever. It's such an obvious fact of our experience that we ignore it. It's part, it becomes part of our ignorance. We don't notice this, except in those moments of an aha experience. So, speaking from a relative position, from a deluded position, we can talk about it as though it were potential. It's not actually uh, potential, it's actu it is actual but it seems to be something potential in us, something that we can awaken, that we can start to experience more of, if you like. And so, really, the purpose of a spiritual path and all the disciplines and the practices on a spiritual path is to awaken this native wisdom, this native intelligence. Awakening prajna is the Buddhist term. In Taoism, uh, in the Chinese language, it's ming, which means illumination. And in many of the Western traditions, it's called something like illumination. How can we awaken this? How can we bring this through uh, this delusion? Or how, better yet, how can we uh, sort of push aside the veils of our delusion so that this starts to flash through more? That's really the big uh, question. And it's this native intelligence that actually doesn't belong to us, that belongs to consciousness, which dispels ultimately the basic ignorance. Does everybody get that? It's not really ultimately something that we do. But where do we start from? We can only start from where we're at. And what we have, we have these deluded experiences of self-will, we have this grasping mind, we have this discriminating mind, we have these conditionings. So that's what we have to use in the beginning. Ananda Moyamai, who's a great Hindu mystic of this century, put it this way. She said it's like using the ground upon which you've fallen to push yourself back up. Another analogy is like judo or a lot of the martial arts, Aikido and so forth. If any of you have ever studied any of them, and I, I very briefly took some judo lessons for about six months when I was a teenager, the principle is to use your opponent's energy to defeat your opponent. So there's this sort of flip that happens. So quite literally, they say, in, uh, for instance, in judo, <coughs> uh, 
the extent of your opponent's injuries is going to depend on how forcefully and aggressively they attack you. If they attack you weakly, you're using that energy to throw them. In judo, you're, most of it's flipping. They won't get thrown very far. If they come at you with tremendous force and energy, you take that energy and you, and you turn it around and they go flying across the room. So it's, it's using the very energy you like of the uh, delusion to turn it against itself. So what are the specific ways that this works? Let's look at some examples. Well, every human being is born with this fundamental desire for happiness. I want to be happy. Whatever, however they imagine happiness, this, this comes out of this experience of suffering. And this is actually uh, born out of an intuition that comes from that native intelligence that happiness is possible. It's not false. And that's not the problem. We know, or consciousness knows, happiness is possible. It's amazing how, normally speaking anyway, how people cling to this dream of happiness despite all the disappointments in their life. It's almost impossible to uh, erase completely. If, you, if it's ever erased completely, that means you're in deep, deep despair. It's not that happiness is possible is deluded. That's actually very intelligent. The delusion that's added into that is that you could be happy. You, that limited being. That limited being is never going to be happy. That limited being is the obstacle to happiness. But the native intelligence is shining through here. If you think the way to become happy is to make a lot of money, the way you're going about it is deluded, but the basic intuition that I can be happy, or happiness is possible, I should say, is a sign of this wisdom at work, this intelligence. So what do mystics do? They confirm that intuition. Here's Rumi, the great Sufi. Seek water constantly, O man of dry lips, for your dry lips give witness that in the end you will find a fountain. The lips' dryness is a message from the water. If you keep on moving about, without doubt you will find me. So our very hunger for happiness is a message of the happiness to keep looking. And it is possible. It's a beautiful image. So... Rumi is saying, yes, in this desire, there's this basic native intuition intelligence. And he's saying, that's true, you're right. But then he goes on to try to point another direction for where you can find this water. So rather than looking in worldly things, he tries to point you to something else. He says... The worldly man imagines that a non-existent thing possesses splendor. Oh, friend, why would a wise man devote his life to the work of non-existence? Oh, you who have embraced a corpse, saying, My darling, in the end, embracing corpses will freeze body and soul. You were born the children of God's vice-regent, but you have turned your eyes to this low world. Alas, how can you be happy with just this? So come... Return to the root of the root of your own self. So here, in, a, in one little teaching, several verses, he's giving a capsule of the whole thing. 
The problem is you're running after non-existent things. And that's why you're suffering. And that's why he uses this image of a corpse. Everything turns into a corpse ultimately. So you're really embracing uh, a corpses whenever you're trying to grasp onto worldly things. And then he points, he says, you are the children of God's vice-regent. This is part of Islamic cosmology where children of Adam, Adam was appointed God's vice-regent on earth and so forth. But he's really indicating as we have some other divine origin that our, our true nature is something other than this. And then he says, so uh, go look for the root of the root of your own self. Who are you really, truly? Go look. So he's really just pointing up the unsatisfactoriness of worldly pursuits, and he's trying to direct the same grasping mind into spiritual pursuits. You see how that's, the judo works? Taking that grasping mind and saying, don't give up the grasping mind here, but now look elsewhere. Stop looking at this low world and start looking beyond, and, and beyond and inward. using conditioned mind on the path. Past experiences of impermanence condition our mind to constantly be seeking new experiences because the old experience is always dissolving away. In the East, this is called monkey mind. This isn't a big mystery. You watch your mind. It's always going after something else. It's always restless. That restlessness is compulsive. It's conditioned. Anybody who tries to do a little meditation realizes how compulsive it is the minute you try to do a little meditation and get it to be still. You see, it's totally compulsive. Always restless, restless, restless. But the fact that the mind can be conditioned to be restless is also a clue that it can be conditioned to be still. We might call it ultimately deconditioning the mind, but in the beginning, you have to use a counter form of conditioning. And this is, of course, what many mystical techniques, practices, particularly those uh, that, uh, of meditation, do. Here's what Anandamoyamai says again. As if by compulsion, the mind runs after the gratification of desires that bring suffering. The mind has become uncontrollable. By the repetition of a divine name or a mantra and by meditation, this illness can be cured. So meditation is really a way of reconditioning the mind to be still. And again, the, the principles of it are not a big mystery. Ramana Maharshi has a wonderful image when he explains how this works. He says, just as when a chain is given to an elephant to hold in its trunk, it will go along grasping the chain and nothing else. So also when the mind is occupied with a name or form, it will grasp that alone. So apparently in, uh, in India, if you want to keep an elephant happy, you say, give, like giving a dog a bone, something to chew on, and it'll go chew on that, it'll be happy, right? So you give the mind something to hang on to, and then it'll just hang on to that, and it won't, it won't be looking for other things. And then he explains why. He says, the mind expands in the form of countless thought. Each thought becomes weak, but as thoughts get resolved, the mind becomes one-pointed and strong. <coughs> the idea is that, the, if you like, the energy of the mind gets dispersed in all these uh, countless thoughts. But if we allow just each thought to just 
become resolved back into consciousness, we don't keep pursuing and pursuing, then the mind becomes one-pointed and strong. So it becomes an instrument, then, that we can use for what? For insight. The still mind, the one-pointed mind, the mind that is not uh, grasping uh, here and there and so forth, then becomes that lens through which this native intelligence can start to flash through. And then, what do we do with this mind? Well, you start examining various aspects of samsara, of this whole experience of suffering. And in many traditions, for instance, one of the first things that you want to look at is this impermanence. Because it's not enough just to understand intellectually impermanence. It's, it, you have to have that direct cognition. You have to bring into play that native intelligence, not just understand it discursively. And the fact that all these things have no inherent existence. In Buddhism, that's called the emptiness of these forms. That they don't uh, have a, an ultimate reality apart from the mind, apart from the way they appear. <coughs> this is why the Buddhist Lakavantara Sutra says, the disciple must get into the habit of looking at things truthfully. He must recognize the fact that the world has no self-nature that it is unborn, that it is like a passing cloud, like an imaginary wheel made by a revolving firebrand, like the moon reflected in the ocean, like a vision, a mirage, a dream. This isn't a proposition of philosophy. The teaching may sound philosophical, but the teaching is a, uh, a pointer. It's directing you to look at something. And again, this is very simple. You sit down, with an undistracted, calm, still mind, and just observe. And you'll see, everything that arises in consciousness passes away, moment to moment. And it's through that observing that you get this uh, flash of this native intelligence, this prajna. You have this, aha! Oh, it's not just that the Buddha said this, or Joel said this, but I can see it, it's true. It's true. And that's the key to weakening uh, this conditioning. Because when you really, really experience the fundamental impermanence of all things, then that grasping mind starts to weaken. You can then use self-will and turn around and investigate this grasping mind itself. You believe you have self-will. And what good does it do for mystics to say you don't have any self-will? Oh, okay, I don't have any self-will. Maybe you even understand that philosophically, but that won't change how you experience things. So mystics say you have self-will, good. Now, you've got this wonderful, stable mind that you can contemplate experience with, good. Use your self-will to take that mind and... Direct it, or turn it on yourself. Look into grasping mind. In the East, uh, traditionally, grasping mind comes under three headings. Anger, lust, and greed. So, Lali Shwari talks about anger, lust, and greed. She's really talking about grasping mind. She says, Lust, anger, and greed are the agents of evil. Watch them with a vigilant mind. Understand their nature, function, and effects. 
They are great deceivers, O Lali. Be aware of them. Now notice it's very important what she says here. Watch them with this vigilant mind. Observe them. See how they function and what the effect is. So it's really uh, just looking at your own life. When you feel greedy for that ice cream cone, go ahead, have the ice cream cone. Lick it, but be observant. Watch what happens. And after a while, you'll start to see, gee, this buying ice cream cones is never going to make me ultimately happy. You'll see that for yourself, and you will stop looking at ice cream cones to make you happy. You may or may not give up ice cream cones. That's not the point. But you will no longer be in investing all your hopes and dreams in ice cream cones. And that frees attention. So you might have ice cream cones or whatever, but uh, attention now is freed up to look farther, look beyond. It's not all wrapped up and uh, uh, attached to these worldly pursuits. You can use self-will to take a discriminating mind and use that to investigate things. You believe you have self-will? Okay. Judgments arise, right? You can distinguish this from that? Great. How can you use this? Well, instead of uh, discriminating within your worldly experience, try to discriminate what is real and what is unreal. What is permanent and what is impermanent. <coughs> it's called neti-neti in Sanskrit. Not this, not that. So the idea is if you're looking for the root of the root of yourself, the reality, the true nature of everything, then as things arise in consciousness and you see they're impermanent, you say, okay, that's not it. That's not my true self. That's not God. And you keep up this process and you keep looking for what is that that is, does not change? And this inevitably, the attention turns inward. This is what Ramana Maharshi says. If the mind is turned in towards the source of illumination, objective knowledge ceases and the self alone shines as the heart. Objective knowledge is that discriminating mind itself ceases. This is not just a Hindu practice. This is found in all traditions. Here's the, the uh, Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing. For however much a man may know, his intellect will never be able to comprehend the uncreated spiritual truth which is God. But there is a negative knowledge which does understand God. It proceeds by asserting everything it knows, this is not God, until finally he comes to a point where knowledge is exhausted big clue here. After you've gotten through saying, not this, not that, not this, not that, not this, not that, finally, that, that discursive mind is never going to understand God, but finally it gives up. It ceases. It stops. It's exhausted. So when the process of discrimination itself is exhausted, then discriminating mind just vanishes. There's nothing to do. You see this? how this is a kind of a judo, this, this principle of the judo at work here? Here's how the Tibetan master Longchenpa describes the search for mind, Buddha mind, in the Tibetan tradition. 
Mind has no color, design, and there is nothing to be shown or to find. Even if one examines it and searches thoroughly outside, inside, or in between. And then, here's the key. This not finding the mind is a space-like state, clear, equal, free from designation and analysis, and detached from actor and acted upon. It is the vision of the nature of the ultimate body, that is the Dharmakaya. It's not that you find, it's that you don't find. And when you have thoroughly not found, then what does he say? It's free of designation and analysis, that's the discriminating mind. It's detached from actor and act upon, acted upon, that's the sense of self-will. That's it. Gnosis or enlightenment or liberation does not come from finding, it comes from exhausting the search to find. Very key thing here. That's why I sometimes say that spiritual path self-destructs, unlike other pursuits you do in life, you know. And one of the things about a spiritual teacher, uh, if you're going to have truth in advertising, a spiritual teacher should say, come to my teachings because they are bound to fail. If you look in the yellow pages, you'll find all sorts of things that are promising you success. You're going to learn how to win friends and influence people. You're going to learn how to make a lot of money in real estate. You're going to learn how to find your soulmate. And a spiritual path, really, a mystical path, the promise is you will absolutely fail. You will fail to find God. You will fail to find happiness. You will fail. You will fail. You will fail. And when you have really exhausted that, ah, what happens? You stop. The search comes to an end. And that is enlightenment. So there's this great paradox at the heart of all mystical teachings. Every effort that comes from self-will really reinforces the delusion that there is a self. Even the effort not to make an effort has the same effect. So you're trapped. You know, a lot of the teachers today, uh, especially Janata teachers, they say, you know, stop. Don't make any effort. Just stop. Don't do any meditation. That's too much effort. Don't do anything. Just sit there. Just stop. Just be still. Okay, so now there's self-will. With the, with the grasping mind because it wants something, using the discriminating mind to discriminate between effort and no effort to do something. And it's, you're still caught in the trap. You cannot surrender yourself, if you're on a bhakti devotional path, you're going to surrender to God, by any effort of self-will. Because the you that's trying to surrender is, of course, the obstacle to union with the divine. So the more you're trying to surrender, the more, in a certain sense, that activity is creating this illusion of a you. It's only when effort ceases, but you cannot make it cease, that gnosis is possible. But here's the paradox about it. You have to make the effort in order for effort to cease. It won't just cease on its own in its normal conditioning, and you can't make it stop. So it's only by pushing that effort to the limit that it comes to a, a stop on its own. There's one other little analogy here. Um, I read this someplace 
maybe one of Ken Wilber's books about a little therapy that's used to get people to physically relax muscles that are chronically stressed. And they don't even realize that they are actually tensing their muscles. And instead of saying, oh, relax your shoulders, the therapy is tighten your shoulders as much as possible. Keep tightening them. And so you sit there and you tighten and tighten and tighten and, and you keep going and you keep going until you can't anymore. And then the muscle spontaneously relaxes. And that's really what a spiritual path is about. You keep going until you can't go any farther. <coughs> and then effort spontaneously ceases. But the making of the effort is very important. This is why it's said in Zen, unless you have been thoroughly drenched in sweat, you cannot expect to see the revelation of a palace of pearls on a blade of grass. Drenched in sweat means with effort. Unless you've come to some crisis, so to speak. It's interesting because this is why mystics say mysticism is not about dogmatic belief. You have to go experience for yourself. It's more serious than that. If you accept the teachings dogmatically, if you say, yes, I believe, if you sincerely believe, and that's all, you're off the hook in terms of making effort. Do you see what I mean? You can't believe like that. You've got to go find out for yourself because that is the effort. Uh, Simone Weil said, you know, in spiritual things, uh, anything less than absolute certainty won't do. And this is, uh, this is, again, a prompting. Don't, don't settle for, well, that sounds good to me, yes. And, you know, my parents said that and all these, uh, you know, the church says that, the Bible says that. I guess it must be true. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's true. That will become your obstacle because you won't do anything more. So in that sense, you need radical doubt and you need to go find out for yourself. That is the effort, that finding out for yourself. It's a little bit like uh, if somebody's hungry and you uh, give them a recipe to make bread. And you come back a week later and you say, where's the recipe? And say, oh, I ate it. Well, it was tasty. It's no good. You got to make the bread and eat the bread. You can't just eat the recipe because the recipe won't satisfy your hunger. And a lot of people treat even mystical teachings this way. They, they are, uh, understand mystical teachings. They're not dogmatists and all that, but in a funny way, they, they read the mystical teachings, they come to understand them deeper and deeper. They can explain them to other people. You know, They can go to cocktail parties and show off and whatever, but they haven't actually grappled with it themselves. And so that's why they don't get anywhere. So let me leave you with these final words from Hafiz, a great Sufi poet, who said, Although union with the beloved is never given as a reward for one's efforts, strive, O heart, as much as you are able. So I hope this uh, cleared up some of your confusion about these <laughs> things. And I hope it motivated you to make more effort. <laughs> Use your deluded mind, your self-will, your grasping mind, your discriminating mind. Can I ask some of the questions next time? <laughs> Does anybody have any comments or questions about this? Or Just one thought I had was pondering the, the mystical tradition of um, going out on, on a, uh, you know, out in the woods by oneself, kind of maybe that's that last 
and for achieving the gnosis or enlightenment. It's that last effort before giving up or letting go. You know, and everything has been exhausting the effort, and that's the ultimate. And this goes back to shamanic times, and this is the great practice of shamans. And uh, this it was exactly that. And they put themselves in extreme positions of physical stress and hardship. For instance, the Eskimos, they'll send them off to an island, they have to sit in an igloo and says, think nothing about uh, except this goddess and that you want to be a shaman. And that's all. Don't think about anything else. And you go and you sit there until you're on the verge of death. I mean, physically, you don't eat, you know, you don't drink. You, you're totally exhausted, body and mind, and, you know, there's nothing else to do. Now, you're trying to sit there and, and just think about this. You know, at some point, the mind just quits. So it's the exact, exactly that same principle. That's um, a sort of a crash course kind of practice, you know. It's not right for everybody, and it's not right at just at any stage. It'll be, it can be right for some people at a certain stage of their path. Yeah, good luck. Um, you know, like sometimes when one thinks of something, the opposite springs up, you know. If we say the impermanence of thing, be it a thought or a galaxy, mm -hmm. or in between, everything is fleeting or everything is per impermanent, mm -hmm. and use that as a way to say, well, since things are impermanent, then why would I hold to them? Mm -hmm. Okay, how about the thought that comes and says, well, since they are impermanent, how about you just cling to them while they're permanent? Well, you know what I'm and this is what we do, isn't it? Most people do most of the time. It's exactly what we do. And what mystics say, though, is you don't realize it, but in a certain sense, you're constantly recreating the conditions of your suffering. So that philosophy is actually, it keeps you down to the wheel of samsara keeps you suffering in a very concrete way. And this, you can learn this through observation. You just watch your own greed, your own grasping mind and all that, and you watch how, yes, it's true, you get every once in a while a little something for a little while, and you watch how fleeting that is, and you watch how much suffering comes from not being able to get what you want, or, or getting it and then losing it and being disappointed and all that. And most people have this insight, you know, this, not something you figure out in your mind, but you start to see for yourself. The problem isn't that I, isn't that I don't have enough goodies. The problem is that it's wanting this grasping. And there's never going to be enough goodies. So the answer to the question, why not take the attitude, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. The mystics say, if you look carefully, you'll see that that attitude is actually creating suffering for you. But you go look in your own experience, check that out, test it. And if you find that's true, that will automatically uh, wean you of that habit and start making you look elsewhere. You go back to Rumi's terms, it's like drinking a mirage of water. You never really get the thirst satisfied when you drink the mirage. So if you've been drinking a mirage and you realize, you can wonder, how come I'm still thirsty? I've been drinking all this water. And then you realize you're licking up sand, you know, in the desert. It's not that you give up wanting water, but you stop, you abandon that mirage and you go off looking elsewhere. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, at the beginning, you made this statement about there is nothing but Allah and nothing. 
There is nothing but God. And then this uh, netty netty, it's not this, it's not that. And then you said, well, it, this isn't God, and you let it go. I'm confused on that. Aha, good question. <laughs> Before we get into that, Abdullah, would you mind letting that cat out? Spooky. No, go on out there, Spooky. So you know who rules this house. <laughs> God. Spooky, get out. <laughs> just, just, yes, give her a little tap. <laughs> Bad enough. Yeah, this or that. <laughs> <laughs> if these cats, if these cats could, they would sit in the doorway. That's their favorite because they get the lookout, but it's safe. They can always run back in. It's a, it's a very tricky question you ask because ultimately it's true there is nothing but God. However, under delusion, you don't see that. So, in a certain sense, what you're seeing is not God, so what you're seeing doesn't exist. So, if you are looking at this book, and you're not seeing God, and you're seeing a book, then what you are seeing is a delusion, illusion. It doesn't exist. It has no reality. Not the appearance has absolutely no reality, but... The, the bookness that is apart from God is, is a total delusion. So the technique or the practice of using discriminating mind is to say, well, God is unchanging. So you are looking now for what is it that is unchanging? Well, the book is changing. So that's not the book. Thoughts, they're changing, so it's not thoughts. Emotions are changing, it's not emotions, right? You're exhausting the mind that projects onto the appearance a book. And when that mind falls away, when it ceases, when it vanishes, then you see, you see oh yes, the book is God. But in the meantime, you don't see that. You see what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Is that helpful? It's a very difficult one to try to explain in words. No. The real trick here is to try it and see for yourself. Well, I, I think I am trying it. Yes. I'm, a, I'm speaking here for the general audience. I know you're a very advanced seeker, Gene. <laughs> well, if there are no more questions or comments, we can bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.